Yeah, who is my neighbor? Why was the lawyer trying to justify himself? He had asked, he's just asked Jesus what he had to do to inherit eternal life. And he seemed to think he needed to earn God's favor by his acts. Now, the man was a lawyer, not, you know, don't think Rumpole of the Bailey, black robe, white wig. You know, he was an expert in the Jewish law. He studied it all the time. So Jesus turned the question around on him. You're a lawyer. What do you think the law says about it? And the man's reply was, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That's exactly what Jesus had answered a similar question that was asked of him, which you can read about in Matthew 22. And Jesus said, you're right. Do this and you will live. Now, no doubt the lawyer knew the same principle that's used in courts today. You don't ask a question unless you know the answer. He probably had an idea of how he assumed Jesus would respond to his next question. Because what he was asking with a neighbor, he was looking really for Jesus to define a neighbor in a way that limited who a neighbor was. Surely that definition will put enough limits on who you had to love, the people you had to love as yourself, to make it possible to claim you'd fulfilled the command to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, most teachers of the day defined a neighbor as a fellow Israelite. After all, if you look at Leviticus 19.18, it's fairly clear. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Clear, isn't it? But a little bit further down, Leviticus 19.34, the alien who resides with you shall be to you as a citizen among you. You shall love the aliens as yourself, for you were aliens in the land of Israel. I am the Lord your God. Hmm. Not so clear. And Jesus responded to the question with the story we know as the Good Samaritan, which I'm sure isn't what the lawyer was expecting. As we've seen, the road from Jericho to, or Jerusalem to Jericho was notoriously dangerous, so much so that it was known as Blood Road. It was 17 miles long, and it descended some 3,300 feet through the valley terrain along its length, and we've seen some of that in the videos earlier. There were numerous caves and ravines that enabled bandits and robbers to lay waiting for their victim and to escape with their loot after the, de after the deed. In fact, it continued to be dangerous right through till quite recently. As late as the 19th century, if you were going to travel down that road, you were strongly advised to go and pay the local sheikhs a bit of bakshish to make sure you got out the other end safely. And in Jesus' story, that unidentified traveler is attacked, he's stripped, he's beaten, and he's left for dead. And when this Bible says left for dead, it doesn't mean he wasn't feeling very well. It meant literally he was lying at the side of the road, unconscious, looking for all the world like they killed him. In fact, robbers probably thought they had killed him, because that was 
the, the easiest way to avoid being caught. Even today, we identify different groups by the way they dress. We can tell a goth from a city banker. Fairly obvious, I think, isn't it? The banker's on the left. No, sorry. <laughs> Equally, we can tell a Scots from a Welshman, by, or identify someone from a different country by the way they speak, by their accent. And it was the same in Jesus' time. Different nationalities dressed differently. They spoke differently. But this man who had been attacked by the robbers and seemed to be dead, he'd been so badly beaten, he couldn't speak. He was unconscious. His clothes couldn't identify him because they'd been stolen. After all, they were valuable. Think about it. Most people in that time had maybe two sets of clothing. One they wore every day and one they used for weddings and festivals. And that was it. So if someone gave you a free set of clothes, yeah, you were way in, mate. There was no clues to a passerby who that man was. Was he rich? Was he poor? Was he a Jew? Was he a Roman? Was he a Samaritan? Was he some other nationality? He had been reduced simply to a human being in desperate need. Now, the first person to see him was a priest. As the priest was traveling from Jerusalem towards Jericho, it's likely he had just finished his period of duty in the temple and was heading home. A lot of priests lived in Jericho. And those who were listening to Jesus recount the story must surely have expected this pillar of the society, this pillar of the religious hierarchy, to help the man. He was, was after all, an arbiter of right and wrong. What's the right thing to do here? Surely he'd rescue the man. But no, the priest not only passes by, but he deliberately gets as far away from him as possible. And even as we saw on the road, it's quite narrow, so it wasn't that far. So I did see... Somebody suggesting you could, if you were careful, travel onto the other side of the ravine and go down that way. But... Then the next person to pass was a Levite. This was one of the men who did practical duties around the temple. Now, in some ways, you could think of him a bit like our deacons with a few added extras. Levites were the worship band and the choir. They were responsible for the upkeep of the buildings in the temple. They provided guards for the gates of the temple and the treasury and the storehouses, and they assisted the priests with sacrifices. It wasn't as prestigious a role as a priest, but the Levite is still a religious leader. Surely he would help. But no, he passes by as quickly as he can and as far away from the man as possible. Now, most of the time, when you hear, hear the story of the Good Samaritan, those men criticize not helping. But before we criticize them, we need to recognize that the choice they faced was not as simple as we think. So why didn't they help? Well, first of all, a very practical one. The robbers may still have been hiding around the corner, so they could get attacked while they were distracted. And even if even if the injured even if the injured man was innocent, he could be being used as a decoy, a bit like a rubber duck on a lake to bring more ducks down that you can, so you can shoot them. And then for the priest, there was a particular challenge. 
if the man turned out to be dead, as opposed to just nearly dead, the priest would have defiled himself in a way he wasn't allowed to. Leviticus 21, verse 1 to 3, states that no priest shall defile himself for a dead person among his relatives, even, except for his nearest kin, his mother, his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, and likewise for a virgin sister close to him because she has no husband. He may defile himself for her. Nope, not even distant relatives, let alone some stranger. He was not allowed to do this. That was the law. And the ritual clean, cleansing after that was time-consuming. It took over a week, and it was expensive. You know, it was going to cost you animals, which you either had to buy or take out of your flock. So why didn't they help? Well, it wasn't just a case of personal safety versus inconvenience, though I'm sure that was somewhere in their minds. It was partly a case of balancing one duty against another. Keep God's law, remain pure and undefiled. Yeah, that's clear. Or keep God's law and love your neighbor. Well, that's clear too. But which one takes precedence? Which one is more important? They made a choice. Now, Jesus must have really stunned people when he next introduced the Samaritan. We've seen the history of hatred between the Jews and Samaritans this morning. But to get an idea of the shock Jesus caused, we need to look at our own time to find a similar relationship. The problem with Samaritan is, in our culture, Samaritan, good Samaritan, has become a, a different proverb. If someone says a good Samaritan, do you think bad guy, good guy? You think good guy, don't you? The good Samaritan's helped. You know, our mindset has changed from the one that the Jews had. I had a scratch, scratch on my head and came up with some ideas. I would say that the, candid, the best candidate, probably at the moment, is the relationship between the Israelis and the Palestinians. There is, there is no love lost between the Israelis and the Palestinians. And both sides would rather the other just disappeared and made the problem go away. But it doesn't always work like that. In July 2016, a Jewish rabbi called Mickey Mark, that's him on the picture there, was in Hebron. His wife and his teenage children were hurt in the shoot, in the attack, and in the subsequent crash. It was a Palestinian man and his wife who stopped and rescued the family from the upside-down car. It was a Palestinian man who gave first aid until help arrived. And for that act, helping Jews, that Palestinian man was faced with death threats in his hometown and ended up having to seek refuge in Israel. And in Israel, he was given asylum for a bit and then the, um, I was going to say his visa ran out, and it was three years before they got round to giving him a proper permanent residence visa. So, you know, he put himself in the firing line. I think he was a modern good Samaritan. In Jesus' story, it's the reviled Samaritan who has pity on the injured traveller. It was the outcast that treated his wounds, using his own supplies for the journey. Let's not forget that. He was going somewhere. That wine, that olive oil he used, was his food and supplies for however long a trip, and he used them regardless. It was the hated Samaritan 
that put the injured man on his own donkey. Meaning the Samaritan had to walk in the heat of the sun, in that steep road. It was the Samaritan who had no reason to help beyond he had pity on the injured man that took him to a place and paid a significant sum, about enough for four to six weeks, say, uh, innkeeper to look after him. And to put that in perspective, if you just take the two, day, the two denarii, that's roughly 200 pounds in today's money, if you look at average wages. If you look at the hotel cost for staying somewhere for three or four weeks, it's probably nearer 1,500 pounds. Think what that means. You know, would you be willing to put your hand in your pocket and cough up 200 pounds for somebody you knew nothing about? Would you be willing to do 1,500 pounds? That's being neighborly. And at the end of the story, Jesus put the lawyer on the spot when he said, which of these three was a neighbor to the man who fell among thieves? Well, faced with Jesus' question, the lawyer had to say it was the Samaritan. Even, if you might note, he couldn't bring himself to say Samaritan. It was the one who was kind to him, the one who, yeah. The lawyer's original question was, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus' story showed him we can't limit who our neighbor is to those nearby or those we like, or even those who are not our neighbor. Being a neighbor is not about proximity, but about how we behave towards others. In Jesus' view, we need to be willing to accept inconvenience, danger, cost to be a neighbor for anyone, even our enemy, just as the Samaritan did. The lawyer was looking for a limit Jesus took the limits away. The neighbor was not the Jews, the Jews and the Samaritans, the Jews, the Samaritans, not the Gentiles, Jews, Samaritans, and Romans. It was anybody who's in need. And that, and we need to be willing to do that. And that includes, for us, meeting their spiritual needs as well. The need of people who don't yet know that Jesus, the Sorry, don't let know Jesus is just as urgent as that man lying dying at the side of the road. And the question for us is, are we willing to put ourselves out to witness, or are we just going to walk past on the other side? What Jesus showed the lawyer is there is no way that he can do enough to earn eternal life, because he can't even love his neighbor enough to speak his name, let alone love God enough to meet his commands. And he can't do it, but nor can we. In Matthew 19, 16 to 28, Jesus encountered a rich young ruler who was unwilling to give up his possessions. You probably remember the story. It was then that Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who's rich to enter the kingdom of God. But the disciples heard that, and they said, well, if that's the case, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it's impossible. But for God, all things are possible. And we know how God did it. Through the cross and the empty tomb. Now, we aren't told how the lawyer responded to the challenge to go and do likewise. 
there are possibilities. He may have walked away. He may have tried harder. What he should have done, of course, is said, I can't. Help. But like many such encounters where we're left hanging, waiting for a protagonist's response in the Gospels, what he did, what the lawyer did, is not important. The important question for us is how will we respond? We can dismiss Jesus' challenge as impossible and walk away from it. Will we try to do better in our own strength? Well, we can if we want to, but we will fail, just like we failed with everything else. And bear in mind, it's not just loving our neighbor, it's loving God with everything we have. Or will we look at our own ability, our own inability to live like that, recognize it, and turn to Jesus and accept his grace and his love and his forgiveness? That is the crucial question that comes out of the Good Samaritan. And it's one that each one of us needs to answer day by day as we live our lives to turn and trust, put our trust in Jesus. Amen.